She came over near me and smiled with her mouth, and she had little sharp predatory teeth, as white as a fresh orange pith and as shiny as porcelain. They glistened between her thin, too taunt lips. Her face lacked color and didn't look too healthy. Tall, aren't you, she said. I didn't mean to be. Her eyes rounded. She was puzzled. She was thinking. I could see, even on that short acquaintance, that thinking was going to be a bother to her. Handsome too, she said, and I bet you know it. I grunted. What's your name? Riley, I said. Doghouse Riley. That's a funny name. She bit her lip and turned her head a little and looked at me along her eyes. Then she lowered her lashes until they almost cuddled her cheek and slowly raised them again, like a theater curtain. I was going to get to know that trick. That was supposed to make me roll over on my back with all four paws in the air. Are you a prize fighter, she asked when I didn't. Not exactly. I'm a sleuth. Ah, she tossed her head angrily, and the rich color of it glistened in the rather dim light of the big hall. You're making fun of me. Uh-huh. What? Get on with you, I said. You heard me. You didn't say anything. You're just a big tease. She put a thumb up and bit it. It was a curiously shaped thumb, thin and narrow like an extra finger, with no curves at the first joint. She bit it and sucked it slowly, turning it around in her mouth like a baby with a comforter. You're awfully tall, she said, and then she giggled with secret merriment. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly, and, well, I'm here by myself today. Nancy and Russell just couldn't make it for this week's show, so if that's what you come for, well, then this show might not be for you. Anyway, this is the 62nd episode of the show, and because it's the second Monday of the month, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite films, and that's Howard Hawks' The Big Sleep from 1946. The film stars Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Martha Vickers, and Dorothy Malone. How often is a film that has a plot that's almost impossible to follow still considered a great film? Well, that's this movie. Okay, let's get this part out of the way since it's the common trivia you read everywhere. No one knows who killed the chauffeur Owen Taylor. He might have killed himself or he might have been murdered. The story goes that Howard Hawks sent a cable to Raymond Chandler, who wrote the book, in a letter that Chandler wrote to Jamie Hamilton on March 21, 1949. Chandler wrote, I remember several years ago when Howard Hawks was making The Big Sleep the movie. He and Bogart got into an argument as to whether one of the characters was murdered or committed suicide. They sent me a wire. There's a joke about this, too. Asking me, and damn it, I didn't know either. 
The novel The Big Sleep was written in 1939, and it was Chandler's first novel that he based on two of his short stories, The Killer Rain from 1935 and The Curtain from 1936. What I'm saying is, many people make a big deal about the fact that Chandler didn't know how one of his own characters in his book died. He might have had something in mind when he originally wrote the short stories, but ten years and many stories later, maybe he just couldn't remember. The thing is, according to Eddie Muller of Turner Classic Movies, once Hawks realized that Chandler couldn't make sense out of his own novel, the pressure was off. It freed him up. He didn't need to think about logic. What came out was a bunch of fast-paced, entertaining dialogue, a bunch of brutal murders and female after female falling in love with Bogart after just seeing his face. And the film plays more like a comedy than a film noir. It's a good thing that logic wasn't very important to the director because, well, I've seen this film many times, and while I was watching it again for the show, I realized that I never understood the plot. But that's not the point. The point is I never cared about the plot. I guess the plot has something to do with compromising pictures and blackmail and gambling and... I don't know. It doesn't matter. I'm being blackmailed again. Again. About a year ago, I paid a man named Joe Brody $5,000 to let my younger daughter alone. Hmm. What does that mean? <laughs> Means, hmm. The film is filled with fantastic scenes, wonderful dialogue, and great characters. Marlowe always seems to know more than he should, but that's part of the fun. Really, it's all about the patter. Marlowe's my name. I'm a private detective. Who's the girl? A client of mine. Geiger tried to throw a loop on us, so we came up here to talk things over. Convenient, the door being open when you didn't have a key. Huh? Yeah, wasn't it? By the way, how'd you happen to have one? Is that any of your business? I could make it my business. I could make your business mine. Well, you wouldn't like it. The pay's too small. Now, apparently, this film was shot in 1944 and was first completed in 45, and that cut from what I've read, made more sense. It, however, was considered slow and a bit boring, so additional scenes were shot in 1946, written by writer William Faulkner. These additions mostly featured Bacall and Bogart spouting some fun, sexually charged dialogue. And to make room, some of the scenes that explained what was going on were cut out. There's a bit more to it than that, and we're going to get into it in just a second. Now, a few years ago, the original cut was released, and while being less confusing, it was also considered, well, not to be much fun. A little side note here, something I noticed while watching this movie. I thought to another film I had seen recently, The Falcon in Hollywood, the 1944 film starring Tom Conway as the suave amateur sleuth Tom Lawrence, who is known as the Falcon. In that film, he takes the cab. The cab driver is a beautiful young woman, and she helps him solve the crime. In this film, Humphrey Bogart, as Philip Marlowe, takes a cab, and again, the driver is a beautiful woman. Where are we going? Oh, a car, a tail job. I'm your girl, bud. Wouldn't be bad. Now that uh, station wagon coming out of the alley, that's the one. I think cab drivers must have changed since 1940. I mean, I've only taken a few cabs in my life, but not once has the driver ever been a beautiful female. Though I did read that during the war, World War II, female cab drivers were common, so... Back to the film. Like I said, this film was based on a Raymond Chandler novel. 
It was adapted into a screenplay by Lee Brackett. Brackett had written her own detective novel, and Hawks was so impressed, he hired that guy to work on this film, only to be shocked to find out that this guy was a gal. However, she ended up working on this film and a few of his westerns, like Rio Bravo from 1959. She also wrote the first draft of Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, and a lot of what she came up with made the final film. Howard Hawks, one of the greatest directors there ever was. And that's just not my opinion either. Quentin Tarantino called Hawks the single greatest storyteller in cinema, and Roger Ebert called Hawks one of the greatest American directors of pure movies, and a hero of auteur critics because he found his own iconic values in so many different kinds of gender material. Hawks lived from 1896 to 1977. He was a film director, producer, and screenwriter. His films include The Criminal Code from 1931, Scarface from 32, Bringing Up Baby from 38, His Girl Friday from 1940, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes from 53, and El Dorado from 66, just to name a few. There are dramas, westerns, comedies, crime and war stories, and musicals. He began in silent films, directing The Road to Glory in 1926, and his last film was Rio Lobo in 1970. That's over 40 years if you're counting. Starring in the film, of course, was Humphrey Bogart as Philip Marlowe. No one has ever played the hard-boiled detective better than Bogart, either before or after. He lived from 1899 to 1957. He was in so many great films, I could do a podcast on Bogart alone. Some of these are The Petrified Forest from 36, High Sierra from 41, The Maltese Falcon from 41, To Have and Have Not from 44, Dark Passage from 47, Key Largo from 48, and The Cane Mutiny from 54. All those movies are required viewing for a Celluloid Days listener. Raymond Chandler himself wrote of Bogart saying... Bogart, he's also so much better than any other tough guy actor that he makes bums of lads and Powells. As we say here, Bogart can be tough without a gun. He also has a sense of humor that contains the grating undertones of contempt. Two years before filming this movie, Bogart was in To Have and Have Not. It was during that film that the 44-year-old married actor met and fell in love with 19-year-old Lauren Bacall. The following year, he divorced his wife and married Bacall, his co-star in this film. And for some reason, the age difference in The Big Sleep doesn't bother me as much as films like Sabrina from 1954, in which the 55-year-old Bogart fights for the affection of the 25-year-old Audrey Hepburn. Now, while this film was happening, Bogart was going through a lot in his personal life. He was falling for Bacall, a woman 27 years younger than him, but he was also trying to work out his marriage to actress Mayo Method, who struggled with severe alcoholism and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. This caused the shooting of this film to be constantly delayed as Bogart began drinking heavy, and sometimes he wouldn't show up for days, so they had to shoot around him. There was also the added drama of director Hawks having eyes for Bacall, but Bacall not wanting anything to do with him on a romantic level. The production was a mess. 
It was rumored that studio head Jack Warner was keeping track of the days Bogart missed with the idea of billing him for those days once the film was done. Now, once the film was finished, its release was delayed because Jack Warner wanted to get all the war pictures finished and out first because World War II was coming to an end. When they got back to it, they decided to capitalize on the bogey Bacall phenomenon and film new scenes. From what I understand, Bacall had a very powerful agent and he almost insisted on it. And we'll get into why in just a minute. But by this time, Bogart had divorced Mayo and married Bacall, so I'm assuming the shoots went a little better. One reason why they did these reshoots? Because they were desperate to promote Bacall. Lauren Bacall lived from 1924 to 2014. She started as a model and made her film debut into Have and Have Not. Of course, she would go on to have a long career in films. She's best known for her films with Bogart, like Dark Passage and Key Largo, but she was also in films like How to Marry a Millionaire in 53, Designing Women in 57, and Harper from 1966. She also starred with John Wayne in his last film, The Wonderful Shootist from 1976. She, of course, is gorgeous, and yes, her scenes with Bogart are very fun. But here's the thing. Martha Vickers as Carmen Sternwood is fantastic in the movie, and that was a problem. You see, Bacall was to be Warner Brothers' new big female star to compete with Paramount Pictures' Veronica Lake, who had just made the noir crime film This Gun for Hire with Alan Ladd only a few years before. Now, after the success of To Have and Have Not, Bacall's next film was The Confidential Agent, which was a flop, and Bacall got horrible reviews. If you ever see the scenes of her trying to do a German accent, you'll know why. Now, she had a powerful agent who went to Jack Warner to try to get new scenes filmed, and apparently Jack Warner agreed. Both wanted Bacall to shine, but it wasn't Bacall who was shining at this point. It was Martha Vickers who played her younger sister. So, some of Martha Vickers' best scenes were cut to make room for more scenes with Bacall. I've read that over a third of the film was reshot, so I'm not 100% confident in that. But for the most part, it was all done to save Bacall's career. Martha Vickers lived from 1925 to 1971. She played the promiscuous, drug-addicted little sister to Bacall, and it's problems with the little sister that starts the whole story. I think the idea is that she gets drunk or drugged and then is photographed doing sexual things and that's used for blackmail. She received fantastic reviews. It was the highlight of her career, but that career slowly faded and was over by 1960. She was married to Mickey Rooney for a couple of years, and they had a son together. But like most who've seen this movie, I just love her in the big sleep. Raymond Chandler wrote... The girl who played the nymphy sister was so good, she shattered Bacall completely, so they cut the film in a way that all her best scenes were removed, save one. For the most part, the men in this film, they're just there. They come and go, and most of them get killed or arrested. But there is one of my favorite actors who has a small part, and that's Elijah Cook Jr. as Harry Jones. That working over they gave you was about the best I've ever seen, and I've been around too. Yeah. Used to run a little liquor. Rode the scout car with a Tommy gun in my lap. Tough racket. Elijah Cook, what a career this man had, right? 
He lived from 1903 to 1995. His first film was in 1930 and his last in 1988. He's one of those actors who just keeps turning up everywhere. You see him in film and TV all the time. He was in everything from the Maltese Falcon in 1941 to the TV sitcom Night Court in 1985, from The House on Haunted Hill in 1959 to Blackula in 1972. Now here's another reason why the film is so confusing. It was the production code. A lot of the book had to be removed or changed. Like, in the book, Geiger's bookstore is actually a front for illegal pornography, and that's only hinted around in the film. When Bogart's in there, you see a nervous-looking man come in and get buzzed into the back room. But it could be anything, right? When Geiger is killed in the book, Carmen is there drugged and naked. But of course, you couldn't have a scene like that in 1944. And the main plot centers around a homosexual relationship. Something that's only slightly hinted about in the film. And that brings me to the point where I have to try to explain what this film is about. You know, I don't see what there is to be cagey about, Mr. Marlowe. And I don't like your manners. Well, I'm not crazy about yours. I didn't ask to see you. I don't mind if you don't like my manners. I don't like them myself. They're pretty bad. I grieve over them long winter evenings. And I don't mind you ritzing me or drinking your lunch out of a bottle. But don't waste your time trying to cross-examine me. People don't talk to me like that. Oh. Well, Marlowe gets hired by an old man who thinks his younger daughter, who's been writing a lot of checks for gambling debts, is being blackmailed. After that, he meets the other daughter, who he ends up falling in love with, and along the way he gets beaten up, tied up, kills people, watches other people kill people. There's a lot of killing in this film. And every woman he meets instantly throws herself at him. It happens to the point of comedy, just check out this scene with the cab driver, and keep in mind, he just met her. Hey, uh, sugar, buy yourself a cigar. If you can use me again sometime, call this number. Day and night? Uh, night's better. I work during the day. I've read that one must take a lot of notes to figure out the plot, and some might say I'm too lazy to do that, but I just don't think it's necessary. I saw an online video on YouTube on a channel called... Film Noirchives, in which the author insists that the good guy Marlowe is slowly turning corrupt as the film goes on. According to him, the only logical one to have hired the hitman has to be Lauren Bacall as Vivian. Marlowe is setting Eddie Mars up to cover for Vivian's crime. You take chances, Mister. It's lucky for you I didn't shoot Geiger. Yeah, but you can step off for it just the same, Joe. You made the order for the rap. You think you've got me framed? Positive. How come? Because somebody will tell it that way. I told you there was a witness. Now, don't go simple on me, Joe. You mean Corman. She would. She'd say anything. So you have got that picture. I guess you think I'm dumb. Just average for a grafter. In the show notes, I'll have a link to his video, and he explains it a lot better than I do. Warren Buckland, the author of Narratives and Narration, and a specialist in films that take some figuring out, said this to a website called BBC Culture. The notable thing about The Big Sleep is that it adheres to restricted narration. It only shows what one person sees and hears, in this instance, Marlowe. Because the main events happen near the film's beginning, Marlowe knows little about the story, which means that spectators know little too. It can be frustrating, but it all works.
have a couple of scenes that I really enjoy in this film. The first is the very beginning when Marlo meets the younger sister, Carmen. I think everybody loves that scene. You're not very tall, are you? Well, I, uh, I tried to be. Not bad looking. Well, you probably know it. Thank you. What's your name? Riley, Dorgas Riley. <laughs> That's a funny kind of name. Think so? Uh, what are you? A prize fighter? No, I'm a shamus. What's a shamus? It's a private detective. You're making fun of me. Uh-huh. Recently, I've started to read the novel. Okay, I'm lying. I'm listening to the audiobook of the novel. Anyway, in Chandler's novel, she comments that he's tall. In the film, because it's Bogart, she comments that he's not very tall. But the big scene, and I think it's the favorite for a lot of people, it's a scene that I had seen many times before I actually saw the film Big Sleep, is the one where he meets Dorothy Malone at the Acme bookstore. Can we wait for him to come out? Yeah. It'll close for another hour or so. It's raining pretty hard. I got my car. Yeah, that's right, it is, isn't it? You know, it just happened. I got a bottle of pretty good rye in my pocket. I'd a lot rather get wet in here. Well. like we're closed for the rest of the afternoon. It's probably one of the sexiest scenes ever made in film, without talking or looking sexy. I assume, by the way, Bogart wants her to take off her glasses and she lets down her hair that we're supposed to believe that they made love in the bookstore? Anyway, it's a delightful scene. But call me weird, I sort of like Malone with the glasses on better. That's the thing about this film. Something I've already mentioned before is that every female character Marlowe meets is beautiful. Even characters like the librarian, who he only meets for a minute, and the cab driver, and the two girls that bring him a message in the club, are gorgeous, and they all flirt with him. Well, Mr. Marlowe, yeah. Mr. Marlowe, yeah. Mrs. Mrs. Rut... Rut <laughs> Mrs. Rut... You better take it. Well, Mrs. Rutledge asked if you would look her up before you went. She's in at the center table. Thank you both. One of the most famous scenes, one in which Roger Ebert said, the most daring example of double entendres in any movie up until that time is one of the reshoots. Well, speaking of horses, I like to play them myself. But I like to see them work out a little first. See if they're front runners or come from behind. Find out what their whole card is. What makes them run. You find out mine? I think so. Go ahead. I'd say you don't like to be rated. You like to get out in front, open up a lead, take a little breather in the back stretch, and then come home free. Are Bacall and Bogart really talking about horse racing? Hmm, maybe I'm missing something here. <laughs> now, as far as the changes from the first cut of the movie to the final released version... I can't say a lot. I mean, to be honest, I've never watched the original, though I think it's on YouTube. 
As far as the changes, I'll refer to something Roger Ebert said. He wrote about Howard Hawks and this movie. He wants to find a good movie as three great scenes and no bad scenes. Compare the two versions of The Big Sleep reveals that the reshoots inserted one of the great scenes and removed some of the bad ones, neatly proving his point. Now once a month, I do a movie that I really love, and this is my movie for this month, so I don't need to tell you how I feel about it. But others might feel differently, and for that, I turn to Rotten Tomatoes. Now, the film gets a 91% audience score, which is pretty good, especially for a movie made in 1945. A reviewer that failed to leave a name gave it 5 out of 5 stars, and he or she wrote, This continues the incredible run of films Bogey made with his now-wife Lauren Bacall. Crackling script ran to perfection by Howard Hawks. Essential, especially for fans of detective thrillers or simply well-made movies. I agree with everything he said there, except his now-wife, Lauren Bacall. They weren't married when they started the film, and they were only married when they shot the retake, so, you know, it's sort of a gray area. Josh G. gave it four and a half stars, and he wrote, Bogey is at his best in the sharp and witty 40s murder and extortion film, brilliantly directed by Howard Hawks and masterfully shot, where the camera is a character by Sidney Hitchcock. This is a masterpiece after 80 years that holds up like fine wine. I wouldn't change a thing about this film. Well, Josh, I agree with almost everything there. There is one little bit I would change, and I'll get to that in just a minute. A fellow named John H. only thought this film deserved two stars and wrote, Disappointed. Once again, I noticed that these stories on the silver screen were written for the audiences back then. I don't think the same smaltz gathers much today. Those dated exchanges between Bogart and his wife almost seem like a bad cocktail conversation. Chances are that today's stuff, if they had a chance to see it, wouldn't appeal to them either. Josh, really? Just because things are different today, that makes what was made back then bad? Anyway, look at some of the other reviews, and you might see, well, it's just you that thinks this way. Another unnamed soul only gave it one star, and he or she wrote, Boring and disinteresting. I almost had a big sleep during it. I blame Michael Bay for this type of thinking. for the film was by Max Steiner and it's terrific I mean it's a, it's a typical film noir style but it works really well Max lived from 1888 to 1971 and, and is considered one of Hollywood's greatest musical composers he's done a ton of work and a few of the highlights are The Informer from 1935 Jezebel from 38 Casablanca from 42 Treasure of the Sahara Madre from 48 and a summer place from 1959. I know I'm leaving out a lot, but if I list them all, I'll be here all day. And that leads to my one little complaint. The scene in which Lauren Bacall sings. Such a sweet, sweet guy was he. And her tears 
tears flowed like wine. Yes, her tears flowed like wine. She's a real sad tomato. She's a busted valentine. Knows her mama, mama done told her that a man is dying. Untied. I'm assuming that was one of the scenes that were added to show off her vocal skills, I guess. For one, I thought it was a little unnecessary. To me, it doesn't quite fit in with the rest of the film. And something about her husky voice, I just, it doesn't appeal to me when she sings. That could be just me, I don't know. Eric, you. And you're higher than a kite. Come on, wake up. I know you. Doghouse Riley. <laughs> you're cute. What do you know about this? What? Mr. Geiger here on the floor. He's cute, too. So if you're in the mood for a good old-fashioned detective story, you can't go wrong with The Big Sleep. In 1997, the U.S. Library of Congress deemed the film culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and added it to the National Film Registry. You know, I just love the visuals in a film like this, you know? The minute I see a detective sit down in an old-fashioned cafe and a cup of coffee is poured, right away I'm falling in love with the movie. Or I see somebody using a pay telephone with a dial. Or a person walks down the street and all the old cars are passing by. All that stuff. I love the trench coats and the hats and the way they talk. And it has to be in black and white. That's essential. I don't think film noirs work when they're made in color. Yes, I'm a sucker for a good film noir. And although this film does stray a little bit from the classic noir, it's still one of my favorites. If you haven't seen it, it's available right now on HBO Max. I believe that's where I saw it, if you have a subscription. Otherwise, you know, Turner Classic Movies shows it every now and again. I don't know when the next time they're going to show it will be, but when they do, I would advise taking a look. Give him a break, will you, Lola? He's not a bad guy for a publicity, man. That's just it. We used to have a lot of fun, but ever since I began to make a name for myself, he's been double-crossing me with his rotten publicity. He's not. I see to it that Lola Burns is a family slogan from Kokomo, Indiana to the Khyber Pass. Strong men, take one look at your picture, go home and kiss their wives for the first time in ten years. You're international tonic. You're a boon to repopulation in a world thinned out by war and famine. You're That's the one... That's all very funny. But how do you think I enjoy reading all that scandal that has an ounce of truth in it? I've told you, sugar. It isn't what you like to read. It's what the public likes to read. They see in these scarlet letter lily of well, the street I'm parts. Well, I'm tired of playing unladylike parts and of your undignified publicity. A little bit before I go. You know, I think I'm one of the few people in the world that likes Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid by Steve Martin and Carl Reiner. If you've never seen it, it's a 1982 parody of detective film noirs. And cleverly, Martin as Rigby Reardon interacts with such stars as Ingrid Bergman, James Cagney, Joan Crawford, Benny Davis, Kurt Douglas, Ava Gardner, Cary Grant, Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake, Burt Lancaster, Charles Lawton, Fred McMurray, Ray Milland, Edmund O'Brien, Vincent Price, Barbara Stanwyck, Lana Turner, and of course, Humphrey Bogart. For some of the Bogart scenes, they use clips from The Big Sleep. So now, every time I watch The Big Sleep, when, like, Bogart's on the telephone, I expect to see Steve Martin talking to him on the other end. Anyway, 
If you have any thoughts about The Big Sleep, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Martha Vickers, Dorothy Malone, Howard Hawks, or anything else connected with this film, let me know. Send me an email. In fact, send me an email for any reason, even if it's just to say hi. I'm at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid all being one word. Or you can use my Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. And there's a Twitter page. It's celluloid at underscore days. I need one more follower on my Twitter account to make it to the big 6060 followers. Next week, since it's the third Monday of the month, I'm going to talk about a film I've never seen before. I'm going way back in time. This is an American pre-code romantic screwball comedy film called Bombshell, directed by Victor Fleming. This 1933 film stars the 30s sex symbol Gene Harlow. I hope you'll join us. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I'd like to thank you for listening. I'll be back next Monday. Take care. Goodbye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multi-pass. Multi-pass. You know this multi Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing.